0: Section 37 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3. The Great Explorers and Travelers of the Nineteenth Century by Jules Verne. Second part, Chapter 3, Part 1. Polar Expeditions, 2 on the twenty-ninth december 1839 the expedition once more put to sea and steered for the south with a view to reaching the most southerly latitude between east longitude 160 degrees and 145 degrees reckoning from greenwich bearing east by west the vessels were at liberty to follow out separate courses a rendezvous being fixed in case of their losing sight of each other up to january twenty second numerous signs of land were seen and some officers even thought they had actually caught sight of it but it turned out when the various accounts were compared at the trial wilkes had to undergo on his return that it was merely through the accidental deviation before the twenty second january of the vincennes in a northerly direction that the english explorers ascertained the existence of land not until he reached Sydney did Wilkes, hearing that D'Urville had discovered land on the 19th January, pretend to have seen it on the same day. These facts are established in a very conclusive article published by the hydrographer Dossi, in the Bulletin de la Société de Géographie. Further on, we shall see that D'Urville actually landed on the new continent, so that the honour of being the first to discover it is undoubtedly his the peacock and flying fish either because they had sustained damages or because of the dangers from the roughness of the sea and floating ice had steered in a northerly direction from the twenty fourth january to the fifth february the vicens and porpoise alone continued the arduous voyage as far as east longitude ninety seven degrees having land in sight for two or three miles, which they approached whenever the ice allowed them to do so. On the twenty-ninth of January, says Wilkes, in his report to the National Institution of Washington, we entered what I have called Piner's Bay, the only place where we could have landed on the naked rocks. We were driven out of it by one of the sudden gales usual in those seas. We got soundings in thirty fathoms." The gale lasted thirty-six hours, and after many narrow escapes I found myself some sixty miles west to leeward of this bay. It now became probable that this land which we had discovered was of great extent, and I deemed it of more importance to follow its trend than to return to Piner's Bay to land, not doubting I should have an opportunity of landing on some portion of it still more accessible. This, however, I was disappointed in, the icy barrier preventing our approach, and rendering it impossible to effect. Great quantities of ice, covered with mud, rock, and stone, presented themselves at the edge of the barrier, in close proximity of the land. From these our specimens were obtained, and were quite as numerous as could have been gathered from the rocks themselves. The land, covered with snow, was distinctly seen in many places, and between them such appearances as to leave little or no doubt in my mind of it being a continuous line of coast, and deserving the name bestowed upon it of the Antarctic continent, lying as it does under that circle. Many phenomena were observed here, and observations made, which will be found under their appropriate head in the sequel. On reaching ninety-seven degrees east, we found the ice trending to the northward, and continuing to follow it close, we reached to within a few miles of the position where Cook was stopped by the barrier in 1773. Piners Bay, where Wilkes landed, is situated in east longitude 140 degrees, reckoning from Paris, that is to say, it is identical with the place visited by D'urville on the 21st January. On the 30th January, the porpoise had come in sight of D'urville's two vessels, and approached to within speaking distance of them, but they put on all sail and appeared anxious to avoid any communication. On his arrival at Sydney, Wilkes found the peacock in a state of repair, and with that vessel he visited New Zealand, Tonga and the Fiji Islands, where two of the junior officers of the expedition were massacred by the natives the friendly navigator and sandwich islands admiralty straits puget sound vancouver's island the ladrones manila sulu singapore the sunda islands st helena and rio de janeiro were the halting places on the return voyage which terminated on the ninth june eighteen forty two at new york the explorers having been absent three years and ten months altogether the results to every branch of science were considerable, and the young Republic of the United States was to be congratulated on a debut so triumphant in the career of discovery. In spite, however, of the interest attaching to the account of this expedition, and to the special treatises by Dana, Gould, Pickering, Gray, Casson, and Brackenbridge, we are obliged to refrain from dwelling on the work done in countries already known the success of these publications beyond the Atlantic was, as might be expected in a country boasting of so few explorers, immense. Whilst Wilkes was engaged in his explorations, i.e. in 1839, Balleny, captain of the Elizabeth Scott, was adding his quota to the survey of the Antarctic regions, starting from Campbell Island on the south of New Zealand, he arrived on the 7th February in south latitude 67 degrees 7 minutes, and west longitude 164 degrees 25 minutes, reckoning from the Paris meridian. Then bearing west, and noting many indications of the neighborhood of land, he discovered two days later a black band in the southwest, which, at six o'clock in the evening, he ascertained beyond a doubt to be land. This land turned out to be three islands of considerable size, and Baligny gave them his own name. As may be imagined, the captain tried to land, but a barrier of ice prevented his doing so. All he could manage was the determination of the position of the central isle, which he fixed at south latitude 66 degrees 44 minutes, and west longitude 162 degrees 25 minutes. On the 14th February, a lofty land covered with snow was sighted in the west-south-west. The next day, there were but ten miles between the vessel and the land. It was approached as nearly as possible, and then a boat was put off, but the beach of only three or four feet wide, with vertical and inaccessible cliffs rising beyond it, rendered landing impossible, and only by getting wet up to their waists, were the sailors able to obtain a few specimens of the lava characteristic of this volcanic district. Yet once more, on the second march, in south latitude 65 degrees, and about west longitude 120 degrees 24 minutes, land was seen from the deck of the Elizabeth Scott. The vessel was brought to for the night, and the next day an attempt was made to steer in a southwest direction, but it was impossible to get through the ice barrier naming the new discovery sabrina balany resumed his northerly route without being able further to verify his discoveries in eighteen thirty seven just as wilkes had started on his expedition captain dumont d'urville proposed to the minister of marine a new scheme for a voyage round the world the services rendered by him in eighteen nineteen to twenty one in a hydrographic expedition in 1822 and 1825 on the Coquille, under Captain Duperey, and lastly in 1826-29 to on the Astrolabe, had given him an amount of experience which justified him in submitting his peculiar views to the government, and to supplement, so to speak, the mass of information collected by himself and others in these little-known latitudes. The minister at once accepted D'Urville's offer, and exerted himself to find for him enlightened and trustworthy fellow-workers. Two corvettes, the Astrolabe and the zelay, fitted up with everything which French experience had proved to be necessary, were placed at his disposal, and amongst his colleagues were many who were subsequently to rise to the rank of general officers, including Jacquinot, commander of the Zelay, Couvent de Bois, Dubousset, Tardy de Montravel, and Perigot, all well-known names to those interested in the history of the French navy. The instructions given by Vice-Admiral Rosamel to D'urville differed from those of his predecessors, chiefly in his being ordered to penetrate as near as the ice would permit to the South Pole. He was also ordered to complete the great work he had begun in 1827 on the Viti Islands, to survey the Salomon archipelago, to visit the Swan River of Australia, New Zealand, the Chatham Islands, that part of the Caroline group surveyed by Lutka, Mindanao, Borneo, and Batavia, whence he was to return to France via the Cape of Good Hope. These instructions concluded, in terms proving the exalted ideas of the government. His Majesty, said Admiral de Rosamel, not only contemplates the progress of hydrography and natural science, but his royal solicitude for the interests of French commerce and the development of the French navy is such as to lead him greatly to extend the terms of your commission, and to hope for great results from it. You will visit numerous places, the resources of which you must study with a view to the interests of our whaling ships, collecting all information likely to be of service to them alike in facilitating their voyages and rendering those voyages as remunerative as possible. You will touch at those ports where commercial relations with us are already opened, and where the visit of a state vessel will have salutary effects, and at others hitherto closed to our produce, and about which you may on your return give us some valuable details, quote. In addition to the personal good wishes of Louis-Philippe, D'Urville received many marks of the most lively interest taken in his work by the Académie des Sciences Morales, and the Geographical Society, but not unfortunately from the Académie des Sciences, although he had for twenty years been working hard to increase the riches of the Museum of Natural History. Whether from prejudice or from whatever cause, says Derville, they, the members of the Académie des Sciences, showed very little enthusiasm for the contemplated expedition and their instructions to me were as formal as they would have been to a complete stranger it is a matter of regret that the celebrated arago the declared enemy of polar researches was one of the bitterest opponents of the new expedition this was not however the case with various scholars of other nationalities such as humboldt and krusenstern who wrote to congratulate d'urville on his approaching voyage and on the important results to science which might be hoped for after numerous delays resulting from the fitting up of two vessels which were to take the prince de joinville to brazil the astrolabe and Zelay at last left toulon on the seventh september eighteen thirty seven the last day of the same month they cast anchor off santa cruz de Tenerife which D'Urville chose as a halting-place in preference to one of the Cape Verde Islands, in the hope of laying in a stock of wine, and also of being able to take some magnetic observations, which he had been blamed for neglecting in 1826, although it was well known that he was not then in a fit state to attend to such things. In spite of the eagerness of the young officers to go and enjoy themselves on shore, they had to submit to a quarantine of four days, on account of rumours of cases of plague having occurred in the lazaretto of Marseilles, without pausing to relate the details of messrs du bouset couvent and de ascent of the peak we will merely quote a few enthusiastic remarks of couvent de bois arrived says that officer at the foot of the peak we spent the last hour of the ascent in crossing cinders and broken stones Arriving at last at the longed for goal, the loftiest point of this huge volcano, the smoking crater presented the appearance of a hollow sulphurous semicircle about twelve hundred feet wide and three hundred feet deep, covered with the debris of pumice and other stones. The thermometer, which had marked five degrees at ten a.m., got broken through being placed on the ground where there was an escape of sulphuric vapor. There were upon the sides and in the crater numerous fumaroles which send forth the native sulphur which forms the base of the peak the rush of the vapour is so rapid as to sound like shots from a cannon the heat of the ground is so great in some parts that it is impossible to stand on it for a minute at a time look around you and see if these three mountains piled one upon the other do not resemble a staircase built up by giants on which to climb to heaven Gaze upon the vast streams of lava, all issuing from one point which form the crater, and which a few centuries back you could not have trodden upon with impunity. See the canaries in the distance. Look down, ye pygmies, on the sea, with its breakers dashing against the shores of the island, of which you for the moment form the summit. See for once, as God sees, and be rewarded for your exertions, ye travellers, Whose enthusiasm for the grand scenes of nature has brought you some twelve thousand one hundred eighty two feet above the level of the ocean. End quote. We must add that the explorers testified to the brilliancy of the stars as seen from the summit of the peak, the clearness of all sounds, and also to the giddiness and headache known as mountain sickness. Whilst part of the staff were engaged in this scientific excursion, several other officers visited the town, where they noticed nothing special except a narrow walk called the Alameda, and the Church of the Franciscans. The neighbourhood, however, is interesting enough on account of the curious aqueducts for supplying the town with water, and the Mercedes Forest, which, in Derville's opinion, might more justly be called a coppice, for it contains nothing but shrubs and ferns the population seemed happy but extremely lazy economical but horribly dirty and the less said about their morals the better on the twelfth october the two vessels put out to sea again intending to reach the polar regions as soon as possible motives of humanity however determined d'urville to change his plans and touch at rio the state of an apprentice with disease of the lungs becoming so rapidly worse that a stay in the arctic regions would probably have been fatal the vessels cast anchor in the roadstead not the bay of rio on the thirteenth november but they only remained there one day that is to say just long enough to land young dupare and to lay in a stock of provisions the southerly route was then resumed for a long time, D'Urville had wished to explore the Strait of Magellan, not with a view to further hydrographical surveys, for the careful explorations of Captain King, begun in 1826, had been finished in 1834 by Fitzroy, leaving little to be done in that direction, but to gather the rich and still unappropriated harvest of facts relating to natural history. How intensely interesting it was, too, to note how real had been the dangers encountered by early navigators such as the sudden veering of the wind etc what a good thing it would be to obtain further and more detailed information about the famous patagonians the subject of so many fables and controversies yet another motive led d'erville to anchor off port famine rather than off staten island his perusal of the accounts of the work of explorers who had penetrated into the southern seas convinced him that the end of january and the whole of february were the best times for visiting these regions for then only are the effects of the annual thaw over and with them the risk of over fatigue to the crews this resolution once taken d'urville communicated it to captain Jacquinot and set sail for the strait on the twelfth december cape virgin was sighted and dumoulin seconded by the young officers began a grand series of hydrographical surveys. In the intricate navigation of the strait, D'urville, we are told, showed equal courage and calmness, skill and presence of mind, completely winning over to his side many of the sailors, who, when they had seen him going along at Toulon, when suffering with the gout, had exclaimed, Oh, that old fellow won't take us far! Now, when his constant vigilance had brought the vessel safely out of the strait, the cry was, The blank man is mad. He's made us scrape against rocks, reefs, and land, as if he had never taken a voyage before, and we used to think him as useless as a rotten keel. We must now say a few words on the stay at Port Famine. Landing is easy, and there is a good spring and plenty of wood. On the rocks are found quantities of mussels, limpets, and whelks, whilst inland grows celery and a kind of herb resembling the dandelion another fruitful source of wealth in this bay is fish and whilst the vessels were at anchor dragnets trammels and lines captured enough mullet gudgeon and roaches to feed the whole crew as i was about to re-embark says d'urville a little barrel was brought to me which had been found hung on a tree on the beach near a post on which was written post office Having ascertained that this barrel contained papers, I took it on board and examined them. They consisted of notes of captains who had passed through the Straits of Magellan, stating the time of their visits, the incidents of their passage, with advice to those who should come after them, and letters for Europe or the United States. It seemed that an American captain, Cunningham by name, had been the originator of this open-air post-office. He had merely, in April 1833, hung a bottle on a tree, and his fellow-countryman, Waterhouse, had supplemented it by the post with its inscription. Lastly, Captain Carrick of the schooner Mary Ann, from Liverpool, passed through the strait in March 1837, on his way to San Blas, California, going through it again a second time on his way back on the twenty-ninth November 1837 that is to say, sixteen days before our own visit, and he it was who had substituted the barrel for the bottle, adding an invitation to all who should succeed him to use it as a receptacle of letters for different destinations. I mean to improve this ingenious and useful contrivance by forming an actual post-office on the highest point of the peninsula, with an inscription in letters of a size so gigantic as to compel the attention of navigators who would not otherwise have touched at port famine. Curiosity will then probably lead them to send a canoe to examine the box, which will be fastened to the post. It seems likely that we shall ourselves reap the first fruits of this arrangement, and our families will be agreeably surprised to receive news from us from this wild and lonely district, just before our plunge into the ice of the polar regions." End quote. At low tide, the mouth of the Sedger River, which flows into Famine Bay, is encumbered with sandbanks. Some one thousand feet further on, the plain is transformed into a vast marsh, from which rise the trunks of immense trees, and huge bones, bleached by the action of time, which have been brought down by the heavy rainfall, swelling the course of the stream. Skirting this marsh is a fine forest the entrance to which is protected by prickly shrubs the commonest trees are the beech with trunks between eighty and ninety feet high and three or four feet in diameter winteria aromatica a kind of bark which has long since replaced the cinnamon and a species of barberry the largest beeches seen by Derville measured fifteen feet in diameter and were about one hundred fifty feet high Unfortunately, no mammiferous animals or reptiles or fresh or salt-water shellfish are found on these coasts, and one or two different kinds of birds with a few lichens and mosses were all the naturalist was able to obtain. Several officers went up the sedger in a yawl until they were stopped by the shallowness of the water. They were then seven and a half miles from the mouth, and they noted the width of the river where it flows into the sea to be between ninety and a hundred feet it would be difficult says monsieur de montravel to imagine a more picturesque scene than was spread out before us at every turn everywhere was that indescribable wildness which cannot be imitated a confused mass of trees broken branches trunks covered with moss which seemed literally to grow before our eyes to resume the stay at port famine was most successful wood and water were easily obtained repairs etc were made horary physical meteorological tidal and hydrographical observations were taken and lastly numerous objects of natural history were collected the more interesting as the museums of france hitherto contained nothing whatever from these unknown regions beyond quote, a few plants collected by Commerson and preserved in the herbarium of Monsieur de Jussieu. On the twenty eighth December, eighteen thirty seven, anchor was weighed without a single Patagonian having been seen, although the officers and crew had been so eager to make acquaintance with the natives. The difficulties attending navigation compelled the two corvettes to cast anchor a little further on, off Port Gallant the shores of which, bordered by fine trees, are cut by torrents resembling a little distance off magnificent cascades from fifty to sixty feet high. This compulsory halt was not wasted, for a large number of new plants were collected, and the port with the neighboring bays were surveyed. The commander, however, finding the season already so far advanced, gave up his idea of going out at the westerly end of the strait and went back the way he came, hoping thus to get an interview with the Patagonians before going to the polar regions. St. Nicholas Bay, called by Bougainville the Bay des Français, where the explorers passed New Year's Day, 1838, is a much pleasanter-looking spot than Port-Gallant. The usual hydrographical surveys were there brought to a satisfactory issue by the officers under the direction of Dumoulin a boat was dispatched to cape remarkable where bougainville said he had seen fossil shells which however turned out to be nothing but little pebbles embedded in a calcareous gang interesting experiments were made with the thermometrograph or marine thermometer at two hundred ninety fathoms without reaching the bottom at less than two miles from land whereas the temperature was nine degrees on the surface it was but two at the above named depth and as it is scarcely likely that currents convey the waters of the two oceans so far down, one is driven to the belief that this is the usual temperature at such depths. End of section thirty seven.